0: Please turn your Bibles with me to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, as we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis, we kind of enter the last section as we look at some stories that are dealing with Joseph and some related things. And I hope you're having a wonderful Fourth of July weekend and excited about uh, tomorrow and maybe some of you having the opportunity to have a little bit of time off. And so I hope that goes well and, and it's a joyous weekend for you. Uh, Genesis 37, as, as you turn to Genesis 37, let me just kind of re, uh, reiterate a couple things that Phil said earlier, would uh, love to uh, have anyone who has not been baptized consider being obedient to the Lord in, in that uh, next Sunday night. So it's not, it's not in the morning, not a, m- a morning baptism, we're going to be doing it in the evening, and so come out to the church building uh, for that, our, our first uh, evening baptism service in the new building. And then also for those of you who are, are wanting to find out more about Bethany and, and think about uh, maybe God calling you to, to fellowship here and membership, encourage you to come out Saturday and see the information in the, the weekly about that for our membership uh, class and, and also just to find out more about Bethany at Bethany 101. Well, I'm going to read Genesis 37 with you this morning. And I'm going to read the whole thing. You don't have to stand for the whole thing. I'll invite you to stand with me now, and we'll read part of it. Then I'll let you sit down. I'll continue to stand and uh, finish uh, Genesis 37 here. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, "'Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf.' His brothers said to him, "'Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us?' So they hated him even more." For his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying. In mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. You may be seated. I'll continue here in verse 18. It says, They saw him from afar, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. For twenty shekels of silver, they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in it, in the pit, he tore his clothes and re- returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we are uh, grateful for our This weekend and what it represents for those of us uh, who are in this culture and part of this this country, this community, we thank you for the place and the time in which you have placed us. We pray for our leaders, for those in whom we have uh, submitted, placed our our trust in terms of recognizing that these men and women serve at, at your bidding, and at the same time we recognize We pray for peace, we pray for the ability to worship you, we pray for the uh, ability and the willingness of the people that you've entrusted to us. We pray that they would seek uh, to do the things you believe you've told us a government should do. Uh, At the same time, we recognize that this is not our our ultimate home. Father, we agree with your word in Hebrews 11, where you've told us that for He has prepared for them a city. And Father, again, we confess those words to be true and look forward to our, our home in You through faith in our Son in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And in His name we pray. Amen. A few days ago I was reading an article, and the article was about different characters in, in movies. And the article talked about a a scene at the beginning of a movie by the director Wes Anderson. It was just kind of this, this two or three minute scene that it talked about. And so I went on YouTube and, and watched this two or three minute scene. And the scene begins with, with Bill Murray. And he is in the back of a taxi cab. And the taxi cab is just careening through the streets of this city that looks like it's in, in India. And and the the, the, the taxi cab is, is rushing through this, the streets. And Bill Murray's in the back of the taxi cab and he keeps looking at his watch. And the, the taxi cab driver keeps looking at his watch. And there are pedestrians kind of jumping out of the way. And they're weaving through the streets and the you know, bicycles are having to get out of the way. And then the next scene, the taxi cab comes to this this screeching, stalt, uh, this screeching stop in front of a train station. And Bill Murray jumps out of the taxi cab with two suitcases and begins to run through this train station, as only Bill Murray can run, and he begins to, to run through this train station and he's weaving his way around these people and he comes to a ticket counter and he's shouting, that's my train, that's my train, and then the next scene has him running with his suitcases toward this train as the train begins to, to pull out of the station and it seems like maybe he's going to catch it, and then it seems, well, maybe he's not, and the train seems like it's starting to get a little bit further and further away, and then they they have this shot, and it's Bill Murray from the side running as hard as he can, and then into the, the shot comes another runner, and this other runner looks at Bill Murray, and Bill Murray looks at him, and then this other runner keeps on going, and he makes it onto the train, and then this this last shot of the introduction of the movie is this this shot of the train pulling away, looking back at Bill Murray as he fades into the distance. And then my understanding is that, that Bill Murray and this character that consumed the first two or three minutes of the movie never comes back again. He was just setting up this, this other character, and the movie's really about this, this other person. What does that have to do with Joseph. Genesis 37, through the end of the book of Genesis, is, is really, uh, a lot of it is dominated by Joseph. And other characters come in and out of the story, and you know, in the next chapter, has, Joseph doesn't appear in it at all. Towards the end, you have other characters. And if we don't read this story carefully, we can kind of be confused as to what the story is, is even about. And I want to encourage us to, to read carefully you know we've talked before about genesis and we've said you know god didn't put the book of genesis here just to give us a a book with a bunch of, of fun stories you know uh, stories that could make up a, a kid's bible book he didn't say you know what we need we need a story that, we need a book that can have a lot of little different different stories that can be colorful we'll have one with some animals and then one with abraham and no, that, that's not what genesis is here genesis is part of a larger story right and the story of joseph is part of a larger story When was the story of Joseph written? When did Moses kind of compile this and and write this down and choose what parts of Israel's story to tell and why? Well, as we've mentioned before, it's when the people of Israel are encamped on the plains of Moab and they are preparing to enter the promised land, right? And Moses writes these things down for the people as they get ready to go in the promised land so that they will, will know who God is, and they will understand his redemption. They will be prepared for a new covenant, and they will look for this, this promised seed, this new redeemer. In fact, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 18. He says, "...the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen." And he's, he's pointing the people of Israel to this future prophet. To who? To Jesus. To Jesus. As we look at the story of Joseph, and we'll talk more about this as we go through it this week and the coming six weeks or so through the end of the book of Genesis, we're going to see that the story of Joseph is a picture of God's redemption of his people. The story of Joseph is a picture of God's redemption of his people. The people in, in Moses' day needed to understand some things about God as Redeemer God to help them in their worship of Him, to help them look forward to a future Redeemer, for them to have trust in God that He would provide this Redeemer, and for them to walk in obedience. And so Joseph is a picture for the people of Israel. And he's a picture for, for you and I as well. We'll talk more about this as we continue to go this morning. But Joseph and the story of God's redemption deliverance through Joseph helps us in understanding some things about our story of redemption. Because the story of Joseph is not just a story about Joseph. It's it's even larger than that, a story about the people of Israel. And it's not just a story about the people of Israel. Larger than that, it's a story about God, right? And about God's redemption, about God's deliverance, and how you and I are to respond to this Redeemer whom God provides. Your understanding, this is very important, your understanding of your story of redemption has profound impact on your relationship with God. If you believe the story of of your redemption is ultimately kind of a story about you, it's going to affect how you worship God. But if you believe that the story of your redemption is a story about God and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his amazing steadfast love, it's going to affect how you worship. It's going to cause you to love God more. It's going to cause you to worship him more deeply. And it's going to, to cause you, as you receive the, the redemption that he offers in his son Jesus, it's going to cause you to be able to, to produce the fruits of redemption in your life. And as we talk about this story, that's kind of what I hope we get at. I hope that for those of you who may not have received God's redemption in his son, Jesus, would be convicted of your need to do so. And, and those of us who have, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, would understand, okay, this is what that means. This is what it means to place my faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what the fruit of redemption in my life looks like. This is how I live consistently with the redemption that God has provided. Here's how and why I walk by obedience, by obedient faith in my Redeemer. So let's first of all talk about this in the story. God provides Redeemer. Look at the text there, Genesis Genesis 37 verses 1 and 2. It tells us we're talking about Jacob, and then verse 2 it says these are the generations of Jacob. Now why is that significant that Moses puts the story of Joseph within the context of Jacob? Remember That word generations is a word we've encountered throughout the book of Genesis. We encountered it in Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when God created them. And then over and over again throughout Genesis, you see these are the generations. These are the generations of of Isaac. These are the generations of Esau. And now we're seeing these are the generations of Jacob. And the story of Jacob is the story under which the story of Joseph occurs. And I think what Moses is telling us is, hey, this story of Joseph is not ultimately about just this really nice kid who, who, who makes it good. Uh, this is a story about God's continued covenant promise and his continued covenant faithfulness to the people that are Abraham's descendants. The story of Joseph is about Jacob and it's about God's promises to Isaac and to Abraham. And then he says this in verse 2. He mentions Joseph. He goes right in. These are generations of, jo- of Jacob. And then he says, Joseph was 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy. And then it says that he was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Genesis 35 referred to them as, as concubines. These are the, the maidservants of Rachel and Leah. And then it says in the end of verse 2, it says, And Joseph brought a bad report of them, that's of his brothers, to his fathers. Now, how you interpret the, the end of verse 2 and, and how you interpret a couple things that are about to happen in the story of Joseph here in Genesis 37 really shape, I think, how you view the rest of the story of Joseph. And some people have looked here at verse 2 and they said, well, Joseph is kind of a tattletale, right? And they've looked at the story of, in the rest of Genesis 37 where it says that he, that he tells these dreams to his brothers. And some people have come to the conclusion that, that Joseph was kind of a little bit of this, this arrogant, you know, goody-two-shoes, kind of like to, to have his, his dad's favor, and they, they've interpreted Joseph kind of as, as a kid who needed to grow. So, for example, whenever they come to verse 6, kind of the tone that they hear Joseph using is not, hey, uh, I'd like to tell you this dream. It's more, I would like to tell you this dream that I had. And then it's kind of this, this arrogant, not a, very, not a very pleasant person. Now, that's not how I read Joseph here. That's not how I read Joseph. A couple things make me view Joseph very favorably here in Genesis 37. First of all, he brings a bad report to his father, but his brothers, the text has been very clear, are not great people. I mean, two chapters ago, one of his brothers uh, lays with his father's concubine. Uh, two cha- a chapter before that, Simeon Levi, two of his brothers had gone on this, like, this this maniac, death and destruction thing of a city they have killed every man in a city. These are not good brothers. And the next chapter is going to talk about Judah and his unfaithfulness to, to God's covenant promise and his his failure to be obedient to God in, in some some significant areas. And so, the fact that Joseph brings his father a bad report of his brothers doesn't make me think less of him. In fact, the book of Leviticus would talk about a, the responsibility of someone to to speak up when they hear of evil that's taken place and Joseph had a a responsibility to his father in fact just just the other day I was talking to my kids and one of my kids had seen something that another child had done and said hey you know dad needs I need to know those things and so I, I don't look at this negatively in terms of what Joseph does here then also as you think about the stories that he that he the dreams that he has I think it's important very important for us to keep this in mind these dreams that Joseph had were not some things that he just made up. In other words, he was like, you know what? This is really going to annoy my brothers. I'm going I'm to tell them, laughing just thinking about it, I'm going to tell them that we, they're a bunch of sheaves and their sheaves bowed down to me. Oh, that's going to set them off. And he, and he goes and he tells them that. That's, that's not what's happening here. Who did these dreams come from? These dreams came from God. And we're going to see that the brothers... Anger is not really at Joseph, but it's really at their father and God. Also, as we come to the New Testament, the New Testament only speaks positively of Joseph. And so, absolutely, of course, Joseph was a sinner. And, and perhaps, uh, at, the, at the worst, I would say, well, well, maybe there are some ways in which he presented the dreams that he, he could have done differently. But I see him very favorably here. I see, what I see in the story of Joseph, as we, look, as we take it in its totality, is we see the story of God... Graciously providing a deliverer for his covenant people. That's what God has done here. God has provided his people a redeemer. Now, what happens next? Though we see the people reject a redeemer. Keep your fingers there, or a finger, or just a bookmark, or digitally turn. Uh, keep 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 something there in Genesis 37. And turn to the book of Acts with me if you would Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7 we see Stephen. And Stephen has been uh brought uh, before the the, um, the the chief priest that, that before this this council. And He's accused of, of talking about Jesus and saying that Jesus was going to destroy Moses's customs. Kind of it was that Stephen was attacking Judaism, essentially. And Stephen begins to give a a sermon, kind of this this message here about the history of Israel. And listen to what he says about Joseph, beginning in verse nine. And what he says about Joseph helps us as we go back to Genesis thirty-seven and. figure out what's happening there. It says in the patriarchs, this is verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob, heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem." And then he goes on, he talks about uh, Moses and and the the people and the Exodus. Now, what is Stephen's point? He's just talked about Joseph and how his brothers were jealous of him, opposed him, and yet God delivered his people through Joseph. God provided for, Stephen's saying, he provided for our fathers through Joseph. sometimes when you listen to a sermon, um, it, it can be tough. I get it, right? To understand the point. Last week I, I went to two different churches, listened to two sermons, and, and I know, I, I feel for you, okay? Sometimes it takes work. Thanks. Thanks, Malcolm says. Verse fifty one though. Uh Stephen's point is he's not rambling. He's not just like, you know, what? I want to talk about Abraham for a little while, now I want to talk about Moses. And he's got a point. Listen to and his point is crystal clear. For his audience, and his point is so clear it costs him his life. He says in verse 51 You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. In other words, these people that I've been talking to you about are those who in some way announced the coming of the righteous one. The the prophets and, and these other people are a picture pointing to the person of Jesus. And at every step of the way, you're not with those who are affirming God's revelation of, of redemption you are with those who are constantly opposing it, be, beginning with joseph's brothers that's who you are and he says you're, uh, says and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it in other words, as we think about Joseph in light of what Stephen is telling us Joseph and his story is a picture of God's redemption. It's, it's somehow a, a picture of this coming holy righteous one. And Joseph's brothers are doing what Israel has, has always struggled with and what you and I struggle with as, as well. Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37 are rejecting the Redeemer. They're rejecting God's deliverance. And, and what I want to do is, is talk with you about kind of five things here. For us to think about as we think about this reality of, of people who reject a redeemer. And some people reject a redeemer just outright. You know, some of us just say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have nothing to do with Jesus, I'm going to reject the redemption that God offers us. And yet, I'm guessing that's not where most of us are, although it's important for us to think about that reality as well this morning. But some of us, some of us wouldn't reject the Redeemer, and yet there are ways in which we reject the fruit of redemption being manifested in our lives. In other words, we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we've received his forgiveness, and yet we don't act consistently with that. We don't continue to receive the fruit of redemption, allow the fruit of redemption to be manifested in our lives, and God would call us to live differently. So here's the first thing I want us to think about. So think about what's happening here in Genesis 37. Number one, people sometimes reject God's redemption because they are bitter towards other sinners. They're bitter toward other sinners. Look, look what happens in verses three and four. It says Israel loved Joseph. Jacob here loves Joseph. He gives him this, this robe of many colors. And as you think about Joseph, that's often kind of the picture you, you have of Joseph, this, this kid in these, these many, this robe of many colors. And his brothers... Verse 4 is very important. Now, Israel has not learned the problems from his youth. Remember, there's the the favoritism of his mother toward him and of his father toward his brother Esau. That worked out really terribly. And then he's seen in his own life the problems of favoritism with his wives and their children. And yet he continues to to manifest the sin of partiality. And verse 4 tells us something really important about the cause and effect relationship here. It says, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, saw... That their father loved him more than all his brothers, and when they saw that they hated him. in other words, it wasn't like Joseph was just this this really annoying kid brother like, oh man, I can't stand that guy he drives me crazy. It seems here that what the text is telling us is that their their anger toward Joseph was initially directed toward him because of the sin of their father because of how Jacob was managing the family here, he embittered his his children to one another, and that That bitterness that Joseph's brothers had because of another sinner, their their father, and perhaps Joseph as well, because of that bitterness, what did it cause? It causes them to reject God's redemption. How is is that true for us? Sometimes people, as they, they hear the gospel message proclaimed by to put it nicely, imperfect vessels. It can cause them to reject the message. Well, I can't, I can't believe that because, you know, those, those people in the church are such and such or do, do such and such. They're, they're hypocrites or they're this or they're that. And it causes them to what? So, well, I'm just going to reject the message. Jealousy, bitterness... Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that those heart attitudes, when they exist in our lives, can cause us to do very foolish things in our relationship with God. Our bitterness toward other believers, even, can cause us to miss some things that God is wanting to do in our lives and in, in our church. Proverbs 14:30 says, "A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot." Isn't that a vivid picture? Tranquillity, peace, graciousness, it, it gives life. But when there's envy toward one another, it, it makes our, our bones rot. We, 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 we decay from the inside. I believe God has really been gracious to our church in, in so many ways. There's a, a sweet spirit of, of unity in our church. There's there's just so many good things that I see God doing in our church and our relationships. If I could, if I could push like one sanctification button, you know, they're like, push this button and we'll grow in this area more quickly. It, it would be related to this, though. It'd be, it'd be related to this because sometimes. I think what happens in our lives is we we fail to be as gracious with the faults of others as we should be in in relationships. And being envious of of how relationships are playing out or or what we're seeing in another person's life, we can create distance between us and them and, and cause us to fail to experience the community that God has called us to experience, the fruit of redemption. You know, God has redeemed us for a people and we have bitterness, and maybe we wouldn't even call what we feel bitterness, but kind of not good feelings, not gracious feelings towards one another. It can hinder God's, God's work in our lives. I heard a story this last week as we were traveling back from Texas about a, a guy who was selling, he was selling some sort of health product. And as he was selling this product, one of the ingredients in his product was, was owned by someone else and this this other person said you need to pay me this fee to be able to use this in your product and the person said nothing doing I'm not doing I'm gonna fight you in court and he was he was talking to this person interviewing him he said yeah I've I've spent two hundred thousand dollars fighting this lawsuit. I probably could have resolved it for twenty thousand dollars, but it's the principle. (laughs) Like, man, what principle is that? (laughs) Because I wanna stay away from that principle. It sounds expensive and foolish. So often, our our bitterness and jealousy and just kind of hard feelings can, can cause us to do foolish, foolish things. For the believer, watch out for bitterness toward others. It can blind you to the work of God. Here's the second thing about redemption and rejection of God's redemption. Number two, people sometimes reject God's redemption because they despise humiliation, they despise humiliation. Joseph has these two dreams, right, in verses uh, 5 through 11. And and, and notice, by the way, as you go through the story of Joseph, you're going to often encounter dreams, and you're always going to encounter dreams in pairs. They they come in twos, and he has these two dreams. And and his brothers and his father respond negatively to these, these dreams of their things bowing down to his. In fact, what's interesting is this, Hatred and rejection of Joseph began with the brothers being upset at how Jacob was treating Joseph, but but now it escalates. And and why does it escalate? The text is very clear. Look at verse eight, kind of the last half of verse eight. It says, as he tells his brother this first dream, it says they hated him even more. Why? Two things, for his dreams and for his words. The the content of their of their hatred toward him is this. This hatred toward this these dreams and words. By the way, as we've already said, these are not Joseph's dreams. And Joseph's words, these are God's words and dreams that he's given Joseph. And they're words of humiliation. Remember, as the story of Joseph starts, where is he? He's with the sons of the, the second wives, or he's he's kind of relegated to a, a place kind of lower than, than these these other brothers. And the idea in the brothers' minds that that this brother would, would be someone to whom they were to show deference and honor was completely foreign to them, incredibly offensive. And yet, God's plan of redemption always demands humiliation. God's plan of redemption in our lives and the lives of his people, always requires humiliation. As we look here at what's happening in Joseph's brothers' lives, God is working them the way that he always works. In fact, think of what James would say in in James chapter 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How can you draw near to God? It begins with humiliation. You cannot receive a Savior until you recognize your need for a Savior. Be wretched and mourn and weep, James would write. Let your Laughter, return to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. I can remember um, I was reading a an article from Psychology Today, and they were talking about people who were born between 1970 and 1990, and and maybe even some before that. It talked about how children who were born during those years grew up in the age of self esteem, and I was born in those years, and I can certainly remember in in classes being told about how wonderful and, and how how special I was and how special each of us were. And I remember one time like a, a coach had us all, you know, turn off the lights and close our eyes and think wonderful thoughts about ourselves. And, you know, it just, it was, it, I remember the time thinking, man, this is ridiculous. But um, it, it's, this, this article in Psychology Today was, was talking about that time period and from, you know, Disney to posters to classes in school, all these things that that push self esteem and this article keeps talking about an author who's written a book recently and it says that this author in this book shows us that high confidence the book is called confidence the book confidence shows us that high confidence makes us less likable less employable and less successful in the long run it shows that the benefits of low confidence are that we we know uh, how to how to do work well it helps us improve our social skills and Feel better emotionally and physically, and much more. It also talks about experimental studies that begin to show the negative effects of high self esteem. These studies showed that people with high self esteem pose a greater threat to themselves and others than people with low self esteem. And that makes sense, of course, right? Humiliation, being humiliated in, in a theological sense here, as we think about ourselves in comparison with God and His his promise of deliverance. Humiliation means acknowledging that I am deeply wrong, that I'm deeply wrong about myself, that my plans for my own life are flawed, that I need a Savior. If you've never come to the point in life where you've acknowledged that and your life is marked by arrogance, by self-righteousness, there's a good chance you've rejected God's plan of redemption. Here's the third thing. God's people, or people, sometimes reject God's redemption by opposing the message. And these these are kind of overlapping here. The brothers have opposed uh, the message because of their pride, and yet also we see the message itself is opposed. Look look here at verses 12 through 20. Again, there's some some overlap here, but uh, Joseph goes on this long journey for his brothers, and he finds them, and as they see him, uh, listen to what they say in verse 20. They say, come now, let us kill him. Which seems an extreme reaction, right? And throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see, and this is, this is the part I want you to focus on here in verse 20. We will see what will become of his dreams. Now, these brothers don't want humiliation. And these dreams that Joseph has shared with them require humiliation. And again, these dreams aren't just something that Joseph came up with said, you know what, I really want to stick it to my brothers. I really think I'm way better than them, so I'm going to tell them these dreams about these sheaves and their sheaves bowing to mine. I'm going to tell them about these stars bowing to me and the, the sun and the moon. These come from God. And so, what I want you to see is that the brothers are not just saying, We don't like what Joseph is saying. The brothers are declaring, What God has said, we deny. God has said that this is the future, and we've said, No, we disagree. What God has said about the means by which we're going to be delivered, we disagree with that, and we're going to oppose that. God says this, we say, no, that, not that. You, you say that there's this plan for us to bow down to, Redeemer, uh, to, bow down to our brother, we're going to kill this guy, and, and then we'll see how that works out. God says this, we say, no. It's, it's a foolish argument. I was talking with my kids about foolish arguments recently, Um, my kids argue about some really foolish things sometimes. I've heard my kids, I've I've heard like, you know, just deep, deep, uh, passionate arguing about, and I'll come and I'll say, what are you guys arguing about? And they'll tell me, I'm like, no, that seriously can't be what is causing this passion. You know, you're arguing about the best way to travel through time or something, or like, you know, which is more powerful, a character in Star Wars or Doctor Who? And I'm like, you know, you realize these are these aren't even real things. These are these are fictional things you're arguing about. One of my sons was telling the other you're not really a mammal yesterday. And they were arguing about that. Like you know you're a mammal. You don't need to argue with him. Uh it's a principle. <laughs> I I talked to them about this yesterday. I said, "Hey guys, I'm going to is it okay if I use this?" And They said, "Yeah. Tell the tell the church about how so-and-so won't turn off their light at night. Yeah, tell the church about it. I mean, no, guys, I'm not. This isn't to get the church on your side in an argument. This is talking about how foolish your arguments are. We do it, though, right? We, we do it with God. We argue. It's foolish. God says, you're a sinner. We say, mm, I don't think so. Or he says, this is what sin is. And we say, ah, yeah, I, I disagree. God, as he talks about redemption, talks about the extent of our sin. Mm, I don't think I'm that sinful. He talks about the consequences of our sin. No, I don't believe in hell. He talks about who Jesus Christ is. I don't believe he was really God. I don't believe he was fully man. We argue and we argue and we argue. I don't think I really have to make him lord of my life. I don't think the the consequences of, of sin or what in rejecting Jesus are what you say. I don't think that I'm totally needing to to submit to his lordship. We argue, and we argue, and we argue, and our arguing with God and his word is us saying, you've said this, I say, I don't think so. We oppose the message. Not only do unbelievers oppose the message of God's redemption, but we as believers are sometimes in danger of opposing God's message as we argue with him and his word. And we don't receive the full benefits and the fruit of redemption in life as we were called to. How much better to respond as a psalmist does in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 5. Read, read just a couple verses from Psalm 119. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments verse 18 open my eyes that i may behold wondrous things out of your law in other words i, I want to come to your law and i want to I want to see and i want to see these these wonderful things these beautiful things that's why i need you to open my eyes so i can see them verse 20 my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times verse 24 your testimonies are my delight they are my counselors how much better to respond that way to god's word right over and over again i want to know it i want to live by it i want to see the beauty i want my life to be conform to it, how much wiser is that? Fourth thing to think about. People sometimes reject God's redemption by by opposing the Redeemer. By opposing the Redeemer. We've seen this already. Verse 18, they said they were going to kill him, but here in verses 21 through 35, we see a variety of ways in which Joseph is opposed. Here is this redemption that God, this deliverer that God has has provided for His people, and now there are a variety of ways in which, and for, and for perhaps some different reasons, that He's opposed. Reuben, all the brothers. Let's, let's kill this guy. And then Reuben thinks, "Hey, let's, let's think about this a little bit, guys." Reuben, Reuben would would say to his brothers, "Hey, let's not shed blood. Let's throw him into this pit." Reuben's motivation, I think, here is to restore him to his father so that he can be restored to his father's good graces. In Genesis 35, we see that things are not good with, with Reuben and his, his father, with, with Jacob. Judah. Judah decides to profit off his opposition to his brother. Let's, let's sell him into slavery. He's our brother. What were we thinking? Let's not kill the guy. The same is true in our culture, right? The story of Joseph is a picture of the redemption that God provides his people. It's a picture, ultimately, as Stephen told us, of the Holy and Righteous One, our ultimate Redeemer. And there are a variety of ways, stated in a variety of ways, that we oppose Jesus and his redemption. It's interesting to think about, too. As we encounter opposition in our culture it's important that opposition to you and to me and our culture is ultimately not opposition to you and me because we're annoying people or we're ungracious or we're selfish or we're hateful or spiteful but wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if if opposition to us was always ultimately about opposition to our lord jesus christ John chapter 15, Jesus would say to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. How beautiful would it be if all opposition to us was not directed at us because we were annoying about our politics or we were annoying in how we disagreed with people, but people opposed us because of true gospel faithfulness. And ultimately, we're opposing our Redeemer. Last thing here, main thing I want you to think about as we think about the beginning of the story of Joseph and his, re- and his rejection, God's love and provision for us in redemption are so great and so complete that even the rejection of his Redeemer is part of his plan of redemption for us. Let me say that again. Let's unpack it. God's love and provision for us in redemption are so great. In other words, the provision of his Son, Jesus, the love manifested in providing for us, Jesus, It's so great, and his provision and his love are so complete that even the rejection of his Redeemer is part of his plan of redemption for us. What is God going to do with Joseph? He's going to use Joseph to deliver his people, his covenant people, to continue the covenant line. He's going to use Joseph in Egypt to provide for their physical needs. Now how is Joseph going to get there? Joseph's journey to Egypt begins with the rejection of him by his brothers. The people that God is going to save bring about God's plan of salvation by rejecting God's plan of salvation. Now you know that's going to kind of blow our minds as we think about God's sovereignty in the in the next few weeks in his provision of a redeemer but But that's how God works. Joseph's brothers are going to be completely culpable, and at the same time, God is going to be completely sovereign in this story of redemption. And the same is true with Jesus, right? As the church prays in Acts 4, praying to God, and they say, Truly God, in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever... Your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, even the opposition of Jesus Christ, even the most heinous act and crime in all of humanity's history is part of God's plan to redeem us and a demonstration of his love. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? As we look at rejection of Redeemer, we we say, Father, I do not want to reject your redemption, your offer of salvation. I I don't want to reject even the the fruit of it being manifested in my life and and give me the grace to be obedient to you, to to come to your your Redeemer and and to place my full confidence and trust in him and and to be obedient. And and then, uh, Father, help me to to continue to manifest that in my life. And As we think about God's redemption, we say, I just just want to, to worship to love him. God's love and provision, we're going to continue to talk about it, and redemption are so great, so complete, that even the rejection of his redeemers is part of his plan of redemption for us. What a holy and righteous and beautiful God. Let's, let's pray. And Father, we, we do ask for your graciousness on us. We who reject you in, in ways and fail you on a moment-by-moment basis, please be gracious to us. Help us, Father, we pray, to, to love you and to, to manifest our love for you in, in every, every facet of our being. Thank you for your Redeemer. Thank you for your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.